0: So today's episode had me thinking for days after I taped it, and I think you guys are gonna find this really interesting too. We are talking about the psychology of groups on today's episode of Music Therapy. Hey, everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is an existential podcast for musicians and music fans. We get into all kinds of stuff what it's like to be an artist, mental health, psychology, music careers, and today we're going to talk about group psychology. Before we get to that, please visit musictherapypodcast.com for previous episodes and upcoming events. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a rating on Spotify Podcasts. They've got a new rating thing on there and uh, just click some stars. That helps us out a lot. Either way, we very much appreciate that. So let's get to the episode. So as a therapist and somebody obviously very interested in psychology, I have always found group psychology really fascinating. Humans are groupy beings, whether we like that or not. Being social is just the way that humans are built. And I think that we can all pretty easily think of examples where groups have done amazing things and plenty of examples where groups have done terrible and awful things. Why is that? What happens to people when they're part of a group? Whether it's your band, your family, your artist community, your country... Whatever groups you're part of, how are they impacting you and are these groups operating in a healthy way or are these groups kind of heading towards a more dysfunctional way of operating? I wanted to learn more about this, so I reached out to author and science journalist Michael Bond. Michael has written for the New York Times, BBC Future, lots of other publications. He was a senior editor at New Scientist for several years, and he has written several books on human behavior. The book of his that first caught my attention is called The Power of Others, Peer Pressure, Group Think, and How the People Around Us Shape Everything We Do. This book is a great, very fascinating read. And he also has a brand new book coming out. This was a happy coincidence that this was being released um, right around when we taped this. And the new book is called Fans, A Journey into the Psychology of Belonging. And I was lucky enough to get a copy of this book. Um, And it is also so interesting and excellent. I'll put links to both of these books in the session notes so you guys can check them out as well. Michael and I talk about both of these books today. We really dig into the psychology of groups. There's just so much that's interesting about this. And for a bonus, Michael is also a musician. He makes music under the name Pretty Horse, and we're going to hear a couple of his tracks uh, scattered in today's episode as well. I really think you guys are going to like this episode. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to think about. Here is my conversation on the psychology of groups with author Michael Bond. Okay, I am here today with Michael Bond. Michael, thank you so much for being here today.
1: You're very welcome, thanks for inviting
0: So we're here to discuss, you've got several books, but we're here to discuss two of them in particular. And the books uh, that we're going to talk about Um, One is called The Power of Others, Peer Pressure, Groupthink, and How People Around Us Shape Everything We Do. This is the book that led me to you in the first place, and this was released in 2014. And you've also got a brand new book, which is coming out uh, May 11th, and it's called Fans, A Journey into the Psychology of Belonging. Would you mind sharing just a little bit about each of these books to orient the listener to kind of what they're about?
1: Sure. So the first one, The Power of Others, is it's about the subject of social psychology, which is how people behave when they're with other people in many different environments. And it describes the effects that other people have on us when we're in groups, big groups, small groups, and also what happens when we're on our own without a group which can be difficult. Uh, the, the most recent book, Fans, is about exactly that. It's about the psychology of fans, why people become a fan of, of something and the, the experiences that they have and the benefits and also the social dynamics of, of fandoms, what it's like to share your interest with with other people and it's it's kind of a an upbeat take on on fan life
0: they are both really interesting reads i've read both of them now i actually my mom was over a couple of weekends ago and i had um the power of others on the coffee table and then i noticed she kept going to it when she had a little a little quiet time it's really interesting um and you know, to be honest, I was a little overwhelmed approaching this interview because there's so many things that I wanted to talk about. But what led me originally to reach out to you was thinking more about how groups shape us and sort of the things that can be good about that, but the ways that that can also turn not so good and wanting to understand that. I don't There may be specific examples that I've been observing this recently, but I don't want to get into the weeds of those because then you just get triggered with your group identity and get talking about the morality and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to zoom out and look at it from this more broader psychological perspective of our participation in groups and how they shape us. And so I thought first maybe we could establish just some some general facts here. And one is that like, whether we mean to or not, we are kind of wired to be, you use the word groupish. I think sometimes we're, we're group oriented beings.
1: For sure. Um, I mean, the, the impulse to be part of a, a group, it, it, it's probably what, one of the most ancient, uh, human traits. Uh, even uh, pre-human in, in fact in, in, in our earliest ancestors that desire to be with other people it, it it shapes everything we do everyone wants to be in a group and that probably came from the environment in which we evolved where that was quite a dangerous place if you were on, on your own not, not not many humans around a lot of dangerous predators and being out by yourself in that kind of a uh, environment would have probably been fatal so we've inherited that and if if you look at your life you know you can k- kind of understand it in terms of the groups that you belong to everything from family work colleagues uh friendship groups a book club uh, a band and anything like that the, our participation in, in, in groups they they kind of define who we who we are. We we think of identity often in terms of a sort of personal personal traits, but actually, we our identities are are, are generally social. I think and, and being being without a group can be a very difficult situation to be in. I mean, health health wise, m- uh, mental health, physical health suffers. If you're uh, truly isolated, so but as as you say, being in a group, it feels great being in a, being in a group. Um, it's it gives us meaning, purpose, but it comes with or it, it can potentially come with some other effects that are not so not so good. An obvious one is that if you're in a group with other people who are like you, then, Sometimes your group tends to discriminate against other groups. So you have that tension between the in-group and, and the out-group. And depending on the circumstances, circumstances, that, that is always a, a threat, I guess. Uh, but then there are difficulties sometimes within, within groups. You, you, you get people conforming to the same kind of thinking and things like that. So there is a payoff.
0: I want to, I mean, that's part of what um, I want to dig a little bit more deeply into. But one one thing, one place that I think is a good starting point is to dispel a kind of a long-held belief about groups, which in your book, you point to um, Gustave Le Bon as um, kind of putting forth this theory that people in large groups kind of turn into mindless zombies in a way kind of just what can you describe you know what he posited and
1: yeah well he 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 was one of many thinkers who encouraged this idea that if people are in in a crowd uh, in in a mob um, as it's often called they tend to behave in ways which they don't when they're on their own and the the crowd-like ways are irrational and you sort of stop thinking sensibly and just go with whatever's happening around you and th- that view held for a long time really up to 20 years ago when social psychologists started to look at the internal dynamics of crowds to find out if that stereotype was 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 true and they discovered that it basically isn't. Um, um, what I mean is that when people are in a crowd, they don't suddenly become irrational, they don't become different people. But of course their social environment has changed and they are responsive to, to those around them. Now, anyone who's been in a crowd will, will know that usually they are very cooperative, friendly, in, environments. And people help each other in crowds, there's definitely a sort of unity of spirit, but that doesn't mean that there's some kind of mob mentality that takes over. What tends to happen is that the crowd, the crowd of people will respond to what's happening outside of their group in an appropriate way. So a commonly, Used example is crowds of protesters who are in a situation where the police are trying to contain them or trying to fight them back, or, or, or the police become become aggressive towards them, and the crowd will often push back against that. Uh, but that's—I think there's nothing mindless or irrational about that. It's 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 an appropriate response to the situation and it's one that that happens quite quickly because within the crowd people are very cooperative that's that's the sort of norm of the, mm. the behavior
0: one of the you know you mentioned the word identity and this word pops up throughout both books really um our identity being shaped or informed or you know one of one quote that i pulled out was um people in crowds define themselves according to who they're with at the time. I thought that was really interesting, the the way I, the ways our identities can shift or become attached to the group identity, depending on the context. With what you just said, there's something that I need help bridging, which is kind of this idea that groups, people in groups do not become irrational and, and lose themselves in this way. And yet sometimes groups can become very destructive and do things that have caused really terrible things in the world. And so I'm wondering how does a group, which at times, as you said, can be very unified and very altruistic, but how do they get to this other point where perhaps things go really wrong?
1: Do you have any, any particular examples in mind that you're, that you're thinking of? Or are you thinking of sort of situations of when there's a riot or, or more pervasive situations where a population is influenced by a leader? I mean, all those, there are plenty of examples of large groups that have become destructive. Mm-hmm. But that destructive impulse, uh, I think, or certainly according to the research, is not led by the mentality of the people in the group, but more by how they're influenced by what's going on outside of of the group. So leaders can have profound influences, a a profound influence on political leaders
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um, who if the group perceives the leader to share their, their own identity strongly, then the leader can be very influential and shape that group's behavior. Um, so it, it's not so much, I'm, I'm not saying that crowds and groups are, are inherently good. It's just that they're not inherently good or bad. They're influenced very strongly by the context
0: that's and that's I think what led me to want to explore this more because it feels that we are quite malleable would you do you think that that's true after doing your your research and findings
1: oh I I would really agree with you yeah and I think that goes against the common understanding of how we are as people we often think that we're defined by fixed traits you know can you talk about someone's character mm-hmm. and their fixed character traits their personality aspect of their personality which we perceive are consistent throughout their life and throughout the different situations that they're in but that's often not not the case i mean people you know, very kind people who are often very kind can sometimes behave behave in a in a cruel way, if they are provoked or if they're in a certain situation, I think our traits are not particularly fixed, and they're they're very influenced by the social situation or the environmental situation that we're in.
0: There's something here, from you know, in this in this concept of identity, that we are. When we're within a group, that's going to shape our identity. And the importance, I think, in this, the way that I'm thinking about it now, is, as you said, sort of the relationship between your own identity, your own group identity, and what you perceive to be outside of that group. There seems to be sort of natural walls that we build between our groups and other groups.
1: For sure, and, and that happens without us thinking about it. It can be a very rapid process. And there's been plenty of, plenty of studies where psychologists have put people in groups using very arbitrary criteria. Mm -hmm. Everyone wearing red is in this group. Everyone, Everyone wearing blue is in this group. And just being defined in that way encourages the two groups to behave In some cases, quite aggressively towards each other, competitively, Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: simply wearing the same color shirt or having the same color eyes, whatever is pointed out to you as being the essential thing that defines the group, you don't need very much to start thinking of other groups as out groups or, you know, even enemy groups. But... That process again, I think, is shaped by by the context. And some in the in, in the case of these psychological studies, it was it was often encouraged by the researcher, encouraged the groups to behave in a in, in a discriminatory way towards the other group. Mm-hmm. So we very quickly and intuitively form groups and favor our our group. Uh-huh. But it doesn't necessarily follow that we discriminate against other groups.
0: Let's take a little music break here and listen to one of Michael's tracks. Um, His project is called Pretty Horse and this song is called Flowers on the Water. Michael says Flowers on the Water is about how having a friend, a small group, can change the way you see the world. This track is sung by his friend Hazel Tratt and Michael wrote this song and played drums. Here's Flowers on the Water.
3: I see a beautiful day, and I'm not dreaming it. I believe in now that you are here with me. You especially bring out the sun. When I see a beautiful day, it's like you've shared with me, flowers floating on the here is water, you stole
0: Another quote, I have, I have all these little quotes I pulled with the word interesting, right? So here's one. When people form a group, two things happen. The first is that the group feels compelled to distinguish itself from others, to signal its uniqueness. So that's kind of along the lines of maybe what you're talking about. We all wear a red shirt, or right. we have some kind of a, or a ritual, or a worldview, a political party.
1: For sure. I mean, it can be a, a flag. Um, a mascot, uh, anything to distinguish our group from others. Yeah,
0: and then the second thing is the pursuit of status. Everyone wants their group to be as successful or prestigious as possible, and tries to make it so.
1: I think that's the sort of that's the basic premise that drives psychology of, of groups. But these are the effects that you observe when 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 you're in a a group. Mm-hmm. Want the group, your group, to do to do well, and but how that plays out, I uh, I think is uh, very dependent on the, on the conditions. It's like there's these sort of basic principles that dictate the dynamics of groups, but how they play out precisely is very variable can, de- can depend on lots of factors
0: you know one of the things that i hoped to sort of achieve by having this conversation is just to heighten our own awareness of how groups affect us and perhaps that we can be a little bit more mindful about the ways in which we're being shaped by a group uh, or shaping a group and um We studied, you know, in grad school. I loved the groups, the classes on groups and systems and the way the dynamics played out. And I left wanting more. I I sort of got it, but I also wanted to understand this even better. And, you know, I we're talking about kind of the maybe the health of a group in a certain way. I think you could have groups that get together and they work together remarkably well and towards a specific goal and are able to use the members in a way uh, collectively um, and communicate well. And then you have other groups that, uh, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but perhaps we would put cults in the other end of the spectrum where something goes kind of wrong. And I'm wondering, would that be would that be an appropriate way to think about groups is kind of along a line of, of a spectrum of health and how they manifest and yeah that's an
1: interesting question. It's, it's a really difficult one because and you look at a, at a cult and a lot of the, the behaviors that cult members been in, encouraged to engage in and, and the beliefs there you could they look wrong. But within that group, they probably feel good. They probably feel right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So right. it's definitely true, I think, that healthy group behavior requires, requires us to think about what we're doing, re- requires a kind of awareness of the dynamics that are going on in a group. Because I mean, for example, one thing we we sort of touched on without naming it is this phenomenon where you get a tight knit group of people, and it feels great to be in that group. It feels healthy, but after a while, the ideas within the group become either very polarized into a particular way of thinking, or it becomes very difficult to. Disagree with the common party line within the group. So those are two.
0: Are you referring? So I wanted to ask you about the word cohesion. Okay.
1: Yeah, cohesion. So I was talking about yeah, in one sense, polarization in a group where thinking becomes very extreme, and the other thing is is, is groupthink where it become, where the, the cohesion of the group becomes the most important thing in the group, and. People are encouraged to conform to whatever the group line is, and that's when it becomes difficult to introduce contradictory ideas. And that I think becomes an unhealthy, an unhealthy environment. Um, I mean that 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 in extremist is is what you find in in cults. Cults tend not to allow any straying from. The, you know, the, the party philosophy, but that kind of uh, unhealthy emphasis on cohesion and to an unhealthy extent can occur in any group.
0: Yes, there's, and I, I had bookmarked this, Irving Janis uh, had a termed groupthink, and I'm not going to go through all the symptoms, but there was a few, you, you included this in your book, and I'll include this in the the session notes for this conversation on the website, but One is an unquestioned belief in the group's inherent morality. Um, Stereotyped views of enemy leaders as too evil to warrant genuine attempts to negotiate. Uh, A shared illusion of unanimity over judgments that conform to the majority view. And a direct pressure on any member who expresses strong arguments against any of the group's commitments. You know, I, I I feel like we see these, and maybe I'm just looking for them, but it feels like that's out here a lot. I'm wondering... Maybe this is just my corner of Twitter, but I guess I'm wondering if how I, let me rephrase that. What are your thoughts on how social media and the internet how that has impacted group behavior? That's a really big question, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that.
1: Well, just looking at the the research on on this, I think it's Amplified an, uh, an effect that, or a tendency that was already there, and accelerated it. So that tendency being, we we like to coalesce around views that we that that are similar to, to our own. We tend we tend to follow people who we agree with, and not have so much to do with those we disagree with. Of course, there are plenty of exceptions. You know, some people make a point of of following people whose views they don't share. But generally, as a species, that's that's a a fairly common thing, and it's part of a looking for people in in our group. You know, uh, and social media makes it a lot easier to, or it makes it very easy to do that to find people who who share who share your your views and. It also makes it very easy to criticize views that you disapprove of, and and just to shame people. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's not a very good answer to your to your question. But
0: no, I, I think that 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 tracks with uh, how it feels often.
1: have, have you had any particular? Experiences that make you have made you think about these group dynamics on social media.
0: Well, um, again, without getting too much in the weeds, um, because it's not about my group affiliation, but more looking at the from a broader perspective. But just for an example, I don't. I read the New York Times every day, and it will often feel like what you imagine the zeitgeist to be feeling. And then you read the comment section of the New York Times where people can post anonymously. And it will often feel like, you know, I kind of don't agree with this, but I'm not really comfortable saying this. It feels like there's a lot of that going on. That would be one example.
1: Oh, well, you mean people are not, don't seem comfortable about giving a, an opposing yes. view? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, but I guess, if if you're part of you think you're part of a zeitgeist or part of a club, you don't you don't want to be thrown out. Right. Uh, being thrown out of the club is the worst thing that can happen.
0: Yes. Can you can you speak to that? So the importance of groups and and what it's like when you have been ostracized. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah. The feeling of being ostracized is terrible. I mean, that, everyone's had that experience at some at some point doing doing during the research for my group on, on fans I spoke to so many young people who had come to a fandom joined a fandom having been very isolated at school not part of of any group at school lacking a, a, a social circle and feeling socially rejected and you know, that situation makes you very um, unhappy and once they found a a fandom or at least they they found other people who shared their interest in a particular culture cultural phenomenon it literally changed changed their their life i mean Mm -hmm. the the phrase i heard so often was thank god i found my people I found my people. You know that—that that was what a lot of young fans said said to me. They they found people with common interests, and it was an enormous relief because they were no longer on their own, no longer ostracized.
0: I want to. It feels like right now, and I suppose I am. I'm focusing a little bit on what can go wrong in groups, but I wanted to start with the bad and then end with what's positive. But here's here's a segue. This is a question. Um, before we go to all of the great benefits and positive aspects of groups, um I had a question from my the uh, Josh, who engineers um music therapy podcasts, and he also sometimes co-hosts. He couldn't be here today. I'm looking for he had a question for you. Okay, here's his question. Fandom would seem to gather people to celebrate something they collectively love, but often these groups act as gatekeepers, determining the level of fandom that one must achieve in order to be a true fan, or worse, adversaries to the material or the creators themselves when their expectations are not exactly met. Can a middle ground be sustained, or does groupthink always turn a fan club sour?
1: What a great question. That's absolutely true. Uh, Fan clubs, any clubs can act as gatekeepers and that that's an example of where the conforming tendency in groups comes to to dominate you know this is the line this is our this is our approach this is what we like and um if if you don't agree then there's always a threat you're going to be turned out but some sometimes what happens is that when a fandom gets over a certain Size, it, it fragments into, into smaller groups. So you get people who don't agree with that party line and they start, you know, they form their own um, group within a group. That's actually popular. I mean, that, that that is a very common tendency across all kinds of groups in political parties, for example. You, you get smaller factions that evolve when the bigger one gets too big or it starts to be too conforming. So sometimes groups that get into that unhealthy situation can respond in a healthy way by producing fractures that then turn out to be healthier groups.
0: That's really interesting. Okay, so a group will coalesce around an identity, essentially, and at a certain point, they may reach a rigidity around this identity that other people might disagree with, and so a natural... Uh, a natural effect of that might be once you have a, a tipping point of sorts and enough people, they'll, they'll faction off and create their own, their own group with their own kind of identity.
1: Yeah, I think so. What you, what you identified in your, in, in your question is one of the unhealthy sides of, of group life where a certain faction within a group determine mm. what that group should do, how they People should behave in it. They become the gatekeepers. Um, and, you know, being in a group is a very natural thing, but there are plenty of ways that group behavior turns out to be not so great.
0: I think we're getting here into kind of, which I would, I could spend a long time talking about just the different roles that happen within a group and the power that maybe a leader has and how all of that can impact the health of the group and shape the group
1: yeah the d- dynamic between leaders and, and groups is is interesting i mean it's kind of i'm not totally up to speed on it and i have to have to confess i haven't studied that particular dynamic it's almost like a whole another subject um the relationship between leaders and and their followers
0: let's listen to another song by michael this is called Better Not Lose Her. Michael describes Better Not Lose Her as about hanging on to someone you love. This is also sung by Hazel Hazeltratt. Michael wrote it and played drums. Here's Better Not Lose Her, A Pretty Horse.
3: Tell me, won't you tell me Why your heart is not sure Like it was before it hurts you that she loves you. Oh, you're all at sea. Is that where you want to be? You better not lose her. Take your chances Set yourselves to the wind Keep on wondering But she won't
0: have done amazing things, and they can do amazing things for us as individuals. Could you speak to that?
1: Um, it's Well, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd answer that by saying it's hard to imagine life without the groups that you belong to. To in in, in, in any field, music, fashion, um, I think it's if 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 someone is if someone declares themselves to be totally independent, I would really question mm-hmm. how independent they 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 really are to give a slightly extreme example if the people who are kidnapped uh in obviously a way that they're not expecting to be and they're held somewhere. That they're not familiar with, the people who do best in that situation are the ones who believe that they are part of a group beyond the prison walls, if you like. So, if they are part of a, mm. a military group, for example, and one of them one of them has been has been captured, the, their mental health tends to be much better at the end of that experience compared with, say, a journalist who is mm. taken without any kind of sense that they're part of a group of people who are rooting for them. I mean, that's slightly extreme, but the effects of being part of a group are, you know, they've, they've been well well documented in, in all areas of of life. I know I didn't directly answer your question, but... It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question.
0: <laughs> well, you know, there is a chapter in The Power of Others where you talk about... Um, some experiences that people might have in the military and really terrible situations and how much that bonds them and connects them. They're sort of forced to create these bonds. Um, they have the shared experience, but also the level of trust that they need with each other just in order to survive and work together creates bonds that you you say can even feel deeper than their family bonds at times when they return back home.
1: Yeah, well, that's how they speak about it. Um, and then, when they return back home or, or, or they, they leave the service and they're without that that close-knit group. And life can be really, really difficult for them, at least until they find another group but they probably would never find another group as close as as close as that. But in terms of how being part of a group in, uh, benefits individuals, just being part of a a sports team, a band, you know, people often produce their best stuff
2: mm-hmm.
1: with uh, with others, their best performances, their most creative. I mean, not in every case, but very often that is the case.
0: I think with, with bands, you see how slippery it becomes, you know, when you've got people who do amazing things working together and it's almost a cliche how maybe someone gets too big of a head or or something. And then it begins to disintegrate and it's, it's it speaks, I think to, well, would you, would it, it feels like it takes some work to keep a group in a place that feels on the, on the more healthy side of a group.
1: Yeah. We've all been, been there if you've played in a band, <laughs> uh, the personalities clash all, all the time and that can be very creative. And often with a band, you have to have quite a loose definition of what the group is about. It can't be too conforming, otherwise it just sort of explodes, doesn't it, with those characters?
0: What is the role of communication within, within a group and with one group to another group?
1: Well, I think without, without communication... Within a group, you surrender to those group processes we were talking about, that tendency to conform or to become polarised in your thinking. Without awareness of those possibilities and um, a discussion of them, the group kind of takes its natural course, which is not, not not always good. And of course, so if you're talking about between two groups, how... How to diminish that risk of um, antagonism. If you, if you communicate between two groups, then I potentially that would diminish the, the robustness of those group boundaries. So you would perceive a group that you're communicating with as more like your own, you perhaps see common commonalities. And those group boundaries don't seem quite so solid. So it makes it less likely that you discriminate against them or feel prejudice against them. I'm just, I mean, I'm not a psychologist myself. I'm a writer who specializes, who writes about this subject. And I spend a lot of time with with the academics. But Hmm. so in that case, I'm kind of taking a guess because I haven't actually seen specific studies on that.
0: Gotcha. Um, well, you know, I think this is kind of going back to where we started with Gustavo Lebone, where kind of the takeaway is <laughs> you can't flatten a group into just mindless mob, but humanizing them, and you gave an example, and I think it might have been on another podcast I listened to recently where if you have a perhaps a group of protesters and the police that are attempting to maintain peace or something and you've got you've got sort of a chain of communication from the police to within the group that that can be a much more effective way to keep the reduce the tension there
1: yeah absolutely i don't know whether that happens um in 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 the state but in 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 the uk it's a there's a strong emphasis in certain areas of having police liaison teams who do exactly what you were describing is to be an act as this kind of bridge so that the group of protesters is aware of the intentions of the police and vice versa. So that there isn't a presumption that, for example, the, the police are mm. agonistic towards the protesters. It may be that they're just trying to keep them safe and if that sort of message gets across, then it would have a uh, absolutely a quite dramatic effect on on the behaviour of people in the in the group.
0: How do you think um, the COVID era and the threat and the anxiety we felt impacted? are groups on, on maybe a maybe more global scale. Do you think that hardened the boundaries between groups? I don't know.
1: I mean possibly it seemed that way, but whether those effects are permanent, it's hard to
2: mm.
1: tell. One thing it did was demonstrate to people how much they need other people.
2: Mm.
1: Especially, you know, if you ended up if you ended up isolated without a group. Uh, pe- people really suffered b- because of that, and situations. But music is a good good example. Music suffered more than any, or just a, just as much as as anyone else um, in that period, because music is very much a a group thing. I mean, even if you're a solo musician, you know, you need a crowd to interact with, and so music- musicians really felt that absence but in terms of hardening group boundaries i'm i don't know it's a good question what do you think
0: uh i think that it i think that it did but as you said i don't think it's permanent i think when the anxiety relaxes hopefully that will reduce some of the boundaries but it feels like if you're feeling more threatened then i imagine you're going to you know um was talking with another therapist on this podcast, Rachel Jones, and uh, we were talking about how anxiety sort of sends us towards black and white thinking. And we tend to be more rigid in our thinking, just more rigid in our uh, what's okay, what's not okay. And so I think that there was a lot of anxiety and certainly in America, <laughs> political, whatever. Uh, and And that's not just, you know, there's things happening all over, but a lot of anxiety, a lot of uh, polarization.
1: Yeah, that can also depend on. I mean, sometimes during the pandemic, pandemic there was a sense that we're all in this together, or, or there was in the UK. Uh, at,
0: I don't know. I don't know that that felt like that over. I years. mean,
1: we had like people who would come out into the streets and bang their pots and pans or make a noise, you know, in support of the of the uh, National Health Service here at a particular time every week. And that would happen, and you'd hear that noise in the street, and that—that's something that just reminded people that we are fighting this together. So there was a lot of anxiety, but there was also that sense of being one big group. That probably only lasted a short, a short while, and yeah, maybe you didn't have that.
0: I think where you are. I think there may have been a leader who liked to play up some divisiveness among groups that didn't help the situation.
1: Sure. Well, yeah, that can that often serves the aims of political leaders
0: right. Um, you know, i I don't want to take too much of your time. Is there anything else? i'll I'll open this up to you, especially your new book on fans. I don't want to there's so many great observations about fandom, about the psychology of fandom, about the benefits. Um, and I don't want to give away, there's also just so many great antidotes and examples, and I don't want to give any of those away. I think you should definitely go check out this book. But is there anything that you would like the audience to know or any takeaways that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Well, I th- I mean, one of the things that surpri- surprised me about talking to many fans was this is not really what, what we've just been talking about, Jessica, on groups, but it's, it's, it's about fans and fandoms is how much they get from the relationship with their idol, mm.
2: uh-huh.
1: a musician or um, an artist or even a fictional
2: mm-hmm.
1: character. And as well as the, the social benefit of being part of a group of people who share their interest, there's also always that thing that relationship between the fan and the hero, if you like, can be really deep and 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 in, enduring and full of full of meaning. And I think that's often not appreciated when people think of, of fans. These relationships, psychologists describe them as Parasocial, which basically means they're they're one-sided. I mean that. So there's two people in the relationship, but only one of them knows right. it. You're never going to meet your hero, but but that doesn't make them any less meaningful because you can follow someone for uh, because you think they share a personality with you or or, or a set of values, um, or you just aspire to be like them and those kind of qualities. Can really bring a lot to to someone's life, so that's like a another benefit of a fandom. I think it's not just relationship you have with your other fans; it's it's relationship you have with your person you follow. Yes,
0: Uh you talked about they might. It might, in addition to what, what everything you said, like it might magnify something that you'd aspire to be or um that you admire in them. You know, my dad always told me, uh, don't get to know your heroes because you'll probably be disappointed. And there's a there's an aspect that feels important in this relationship of idealization um of a hero, if you're a fan. And I guess I'm coming back to a question around social media where it feels like, you know, more and more you can you can see your favorite musician's living room if they put up an Instagram story of whatever, or maybe they're just sharing quite a bit. Has that changed? And and as you were having these conversations or learning, has that changed fandom at all for people?
1: It's probably made those relationships feel a bit more intimate, depending on what the artist actually shares. But knowing what the inside of their living room looks like would enhance that sense that you know them a bit they may not know you but you sort of know them and maybe you get them but gen- but generally the people it can feel like having a relationship with with, with, a, with a friend in some ways but almost particularly a role model so these people become a role model um and of course if the if your hero does something disappointing um or you know, m- mor- morally dubious, then that can be, that can be a source of great distress to the fan.
0: Here is a question. If you if you have time for one more question, sure. Um, because this is geared uh, mostly towards musicians, and you're a musician yourself, um, so I don't know how you do it all. Uh, Here's, okay, here's a question for a band. So, a band is a group. Do you have any suggestions for bands for achieving healthy cohesion?
1: Talk a talk a lot, talk a lot. Yeah, talk a lot. Um, I, I would just say talk, communicate a lot, and don't have too many rules because the boundaries of your group are set. They're there. You know, you're you're in this band. You're playing under the same name. It feels fantastic when you're riding together or playing a gig together. So you've got all that, that's all set. Within that, just keep it flexible. I mean, that's, I feel, uh, I feel you, it'd be a mistake to try and uh, tell the musicians what they should, <laughs> how <laughs> they should run their bands. But, you know, that's my loose advice.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I, I love both of these books. So much. Thank you for making them.
1: Thanks, Jessica. Thanks so much. Be really interesting conversation. Very thought provoking.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Okay. I want to thank Michael Bond for his time today. I could have talked to him for five more hours, probably more on this topic. I really hope you guys found it interesting and informative please check out his brand new book, Fans, A Journey into the Psychology of Belonging. His older book, The Power of Others, Peer Pressure, Groupthink, and How the People Around Us Shape Everything We Do. And he's got other books too. You can visit his website at michaelbond.co.uk to learn more about him, listen to his music, read some of his articles. He's really quite accomplished. I hope you guys have been doing well. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love till I see you again.